I don't know if you've noticed that this world is on fire. Not in a good way. It just seems like all the the uh, institutions that we are familiar with and everything are falling apart. They're being uh, destroyed from within or from without. There's a lot of volatility on the international level, a lot of wars and, and difficulties, a lot of enmity, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fears and concerns and trepidation, uncertainty, how to do, how to, how to just live, how to direct this, this next day of our lives. It seems like this upheaval is just even personally threatening to us. We don't have a sense of peace or well-being or or even confidence, you know, which way should we turn? Where do we rest our, our heads? Where do we find any kind of solace or, or joy in this life? So many things are just falling apart around us. We have upcoming elections. Maybe if we have put our hope in princes or put our hope in, in government processes that these elections really are the, the uh, our last uh, great bastion of, of, uh, of real change or real protection for our rights and so forth. Uh, don't put your faith in government institutions, whether locally or, or state or, or federal or international. No, trust in the Lord in that regard. But but we can have, because it's only, what, a month and a half? No, two months away, two and a half months away, roughly, this election and lots of things, you know, futures will rise and fall, not just stock futures, but individual futures will rise and fall based on these things. Why are we not more fearful? Why are not, Why are we not, as my father-in-law would say, jumping out of one-story building windows, you know, just because of fear and it was, has overtaken us, you know, lest we think that it's just a minor thing that, that these problems just are, are minor. No, these are significant issues. You see some of them on the screen, personal finance issues, troubles of any sort, the price of gasoline, good grief, uh, investments, and, you know, people who have said that my 401k turned into a 201k because of the, the stock market. And we have national debt issues. We have uh, volatility, uncertainty. We have payments. I've got to pay on this or that and the other thing. We have sickness on top of that, uh, disease, you know, long-standing disease, all sorts of reasons for us to ah, just, just cry and scream and wonder, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord in this time? Well, amidst all these, these difficulties and struggles of life, God wants us to trust him. God wants us to rest in faith, not rest on our laurels and just let God take care of it all. We are active, we are doing, but we do, we work on behalf or on the basis of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is sovereign, that he is good, that he is attentive, he's aware of what's going on in this world. It's somewhat reminiscent of when Moses was receiving the command from the Lord. There's a line in Exodus 2, I guess it is, that, that says all that the cries of, of Israel in bondage in Egypt rose up to the Lord, the Lord heard the Lord saw, the Lord understood, he remembered. God knows what's going on. It's not like he's he's unaware, he's he's you know, taken, distracted by other things over on Pluto or something. No, he's he's fully attentive to what's going on here. His heart is bent on his people, on this this world, this earth that he has created for his glory. He's not somehow being aware of these issues, somehow not able to respond to them. His hand is somehow too short to respond to it. Or maybe he says, well, you know, I've tried, I've helped them so many times, it's there, it's on them now. They've got to do it this time. No, God is so near to the brokenhearted. He is so near to those who cry out to him and call upon him. As we consider this morning, especially how these difficulties impact our economic concerns. We think, oh, good grief, economic concerns. That's, that's the least of our concerns. But have you ever gone a day without thinking or using money? thinking about using money, uh, even balancing your checkbook, which I don't know if anybody does anymore. It's kind of a passe. I used to do it all the time. Uh, or uh, just recognizing, taking a look, what are you invested in? What are your stocks and bonds? And what's your liquidity and all those kinds of things? 
economics is an important aspect of our lives. How do we deal with money? And notice, if you looked in the bulletin, it's not handling your money or handling our money. It's handling money. Ultimately, everything belongs to him. We're stewards. We're managers of it. But there are all sorts of things that would inflict us or afflict us or, or cause us to have great concern about uh, economic stability in this age. So I'd like to look at this morning some causes of economic difficulties and then some solutions. What can we do about these things? What can we practically do? Not just you know do the, the Hail Mary passes and hope that everything turns out all right in the end. We want to have confidence that everything will work out in God's economy, God's plan, God's stewardship, God's management of this world. But we have some certain things that we need to be doing in this life. But first of all, realizing that sometimes economic difficulty comes because of divine judgment. God judges disobedience. And we see it in relation, especially when God's, with God's promise to Israel, his covenant with Israel, but it's also extended to other nations. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48, God talks about serving the Lord with gladness and a merry heart because of the abundance of all these things. God was bringing them to a land of milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey, a land in which you will live in houses you didn't build and ten gardens you didn't plant and sin under fig trees that you didn't cultivate. You will have an abundance. Therefore, because you did not do that, it says, you, because you did not serve with a glad heart, we're not thankful for these things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom Yahweh will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lack of all things, and he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Now that's a promise for Israel. In other words, if you don't mind summarizing the Mosaic covenant is, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And to celebrate and recognize his blessings are just so profound and so wonderful but also to recognize his curses are also wonderful or woeful in that kind of a sense that, wow, God knows how to bless, he knows how to curse, and he will do those if, or based on our obedience to him. And lest you think, well, I'm glad we're in the new covenant. Yes, I am too. And yet there is still rewards for faithful service and for not faithful service. We could read about that in Second Corinthians. And yet he, we recognize rather that we want to be faithful. We want to be obedient to the Lord, not for the blessings, not for the trappings of it, but just to draw near to Christ. Forget about this other stuff, you know, peril, nakedness, and hunger, and thirst. No. Okay, fine. If I can know Christ better, that's good. That's good enough for me. I'll be satisfied in that. Again, I mentioned that this kind of punishment, divine judgment, practically is not just for Israel, but other nations. God had a similar judgment upon Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Edom and Moab and Ammon and and just all kind of countries you can read about in the Old Testament time. Divine judgment is one cause for economic difficulty. Divine testing is another cause, another reason for this. And we think, oh, I wish God wouldn't test me in this. Or maybe... If you've seen the seen or read or heard the the old play Fiddler on the Roof and the the famous song that Tevye sings, "If I Were a Rich Man," and, and in relation to that, because he's a poor farmer dairyman, but he says, you know, if if riches are a curse, may God smite me with it, and may I never recover. And you think, okay, that's that's really worldly, Tevye. How dare you say that? But he was just saying we have a hard life; it's difficult. If God would just be gracious to us, sometimes divine testing comes for. God demonstrating, you know, tests, as, you, as some of you are in, in a testing mode in school or whatever, tests are both a, a, a confirmation to the teacher that the student knows the subject matter, but it's also a confirmation to the student, hey, 
I know this stuff. Or maybe, oh, I don't know that stuff. And that's what tests help us to realize. And we want to receive these tests for God to demonstrate and even to purify the faith of his people. Genesis chapter 22, one of the famous, famous testings of the Lord of, of one of his people, Abraham. He said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go and sacrifice him on a, on a mountain of which I'll show you. And it says here in verse 1 of chapter 22, God, it happened that God tested tested Abraham. He tested him on purpose. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake or anything like that. This is something that God was doing to test the faith of Abraham, to prove it to Abram, Abraham, and also to God himself. I mentioned this before, Exodus 2020. I mentioned 2020 vision, right? Exodus 2020. These are the people of Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and there's God in his glory, thunder and lightning, and just wow, amazing God on display. And the people were fearful, and they shrunk back from him. And Moses said, Exodus 20 and verse 20, he said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may be with you, so that you may not sin. He's come to test you. He wants to, the fear of, of him to remain with you so that you may not sin. Testing helps us to, to uh, turn away from foolishness and wickedness and disobedience and draw near to the Lord. We saw it in relation to Job, Job chapter 2, Job 1, of course, but then in chapter 2, uh, verse 3, Yahweh, the Lord God, says to Satan, who's there in his presence, Have you set your heart uh, upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, flameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. So you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. There is God's testing, which is to confirm and establish the faith of his believers. And then using that same situation, and you can fill in the blanks of what happened to Job, right? The destruction of his children and his livestock and, and all of his personal economics. And the the means that God had to test and examine and prove and, and demonstrate the faith, the integrity of Job, also was used by Satan to want to destroy him. Want to absolutely cut him down, to, to wipe him out, to shoo, show that, that he... Job only trusts in God because you've put a hedge around him. You are protecting him from all the dangers of the world. You remove that hedge, and he will curse you. Watch, I guarantee, says Satan about Job. That's not what happened. Thankfully, the faith of Job was tested and tried and proven that he was depending in the Lord. God uses trouble to sanctify us. The same testing, though, Satan can use to destroy us. Now, we're talking about divine divine uh, reasons or causes of economic difficulty. These next several reasons are more human-based, more um, under-the-sun kind of thinking, I suppose, more personal responsibility issues. Not that those first two are not. Obviously, obedience and, and the proof of faith are, are come back to us. But sometimes economic difficulty just become, comes because of I was an innocent victim, this casualty of, of things that are going on. Do you remember in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 11, how the preacher is talking all about these things, and he says in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 11, again, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the mighty, and neither is bread to the wise, nor riches to the discerning, nor favor to men who know, for time and misfortune overtake them all. Wow, that's a good news, isn't it? Let's, let's go do that. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish sees in an evil net, and the bird sees in a trap, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. So, you know, the best you can do sometimes 
It all falls short. You've heard the story maybe of Horatio Spafford, author of the the hymn, um, It Is Well With My Soul. Thank you. You know it well. I just forget. He had suffered economic difficulty in the great Chicago fire and sent his family on ahead, his wife and and daughters on ahead to uh, England. I forget where they're heading, the old country from from Chicago. And his, his wife and children went through a shipwreck and his wife was the only survivor from his family and so how does how does this even happen what is god doing well demonstrating the faith of of horatio and his wife and and uh, and then things happen you know as Kohelet said sometimes for through no fault of your own this these things uh, happen and overtake you time and misfortune overtake them all is God in control of all these things? Absolutely. But from our perspective, we, we can't understand. Is this divine judgment upon me? Is he testing my faith? Well, let's use that moment to examine ourselves. Is God judging me for my sin, my disobedience, my my uh, uh, parlaying over here in this issue? I'm, I shouldn't be doing it. Is God testing my faith? Is he, is he drawing me close? All these things we can consider regardless of it's, a, hey, I'm an innocent casualty. I didn't, I didn't intend this for myself. It just happened upon me. Another reason that economic difficulties come is because of foolish decisions. And you think, oh, I've been there with, you know, uh, one radio financial guy, Dave Ramsey, talks about, I, I've done stupid with zeros on the end of it, right? Just multiplied of whatever you've done, oh, I've done even worse than that. So, yes, foolish decisions happen. Psalm 107, verse 17 says, ignorant fools, okay, now anybody want to put themselves in that category? Ignorant fools, because of their uh, way of transgression and because of their iniquities were afflicted. In other words, affliction comes for those who are foolish, those who walk in transgression, those who love and, 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 and uh, grow their iniquities. All these foolish decisions can bring upon economic difficulty. The Proverbs talk about uh, the, and this was one of my roommate's uh, life verses, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, do you see a sluggard on his bed? You know, because there he's lying on his bed when he should be doing his homework. And you know, what, what happens to those? Like our men, they come in against those who are lazy, that don't do the work. So foolish decisions. Uh, or even Proverbs 19 and verse 3, the folly of man subverts his way. What is it? It's the folly, the foolish decisions of man subverts or undercuts or just turns them off in the right direction. But guess what that guy does? He, his heart rages against Yahweh. Wait a minute, whose fault is this? It's my foolish decisions. And who am I going to blame for it? God. God, why'd you do this? Why'd you let this happen to me? Excuse me, you're the one that just made that foolish, ignorant decision. What are you, what are you blaming God for? Now, we'll look at more of these, these kind of uh, personal economics, some of these decisions that we can make and part of the solutions part. But another big reason for economic difficulty is greed. Greed, and um, we'll define, actually, I'll, I'll group these next three ideas together. Greed and covetousness and envy. And you think, aren't those all the same words? Greed and covetousness and envy? Well, let me break it apart for you just a little bit. Greed and covetousness and envy. Greed is the desire for more, um, desiring more than what is needed. It's okay to desire food and clothing and shelter and so forth. When you want more, uh, if you want more and more, you, you, you have you have enough. Now I just need a little bit more, a little bit more variety, a little bit more diversity of this thing, a little bit more quantity of this. Greed is that thing that is never satisfied, never content with what you have. Covetousness is desiring what others have, whereas greed is just focused on the, the good or the service. Covetousness has raised its head and says, hey, what they have, that's what I want. I want exactly what they have. And then you add envy into that. Envy is resentment at what others have. And you're just angry about it. You're angry and you just are sulking about it. Remember Ahab 
coveting and envying Naboth's or Naboth's garden. And why, hey, I'll, I'll buy it from you. And I can't do that. And you remember that murder happened because of that. Greed and covetousness and envy. We saw it in his life and it was horrible. And judgment came upon Ahab and Jezebel for their wickedness. But greed is something that is a, a great difficulty for us. Have being a lover of money. Remember, as we studied Luke and Luke's gospel and the Pharisees, Luke 17, Luke 16, verse 14 says the Pharisees who were lovers of money, by the way. You don't want to be characterized by that. You don't want that on your tombstone, right? There lies Scott Chadwick, a lover of money. Don't. You don't want that on your thing. But why do we act like it? Why do we have this, this greed for more and more and more? Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus said to them, watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his heart or does his life consist of his possessions. Even if you have more than enough, that's not what life is all about. As the saying goes, he who dies with the most toys still dies. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. We'll look at a verse about that in just a little bit. This often misquoted passage from 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's the love of money, not money itself. It's okay if you have wallets or purses with money in it. It's not you didn't bring the verboten stuff or forbidden stuff into the presence of the Lord in this church meeting. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of it, the greed, the desire for it, the, the orienting your whole life around getting more and more and more. God is so concerned about greed that he lumps it right together with uh, sexual immorality and impurity. Ephesians 5 and verse 3, but he says, Ephesians 5, 3 says, sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. If we are, are disgusted with the sexual immorality and impurity, oh, yuck, yuck, yuck. What about greed? Are we disgusted with that as well? And the overwhelming desire for more. This is one of my favorite verses, too. I mean, if you start in Genesis and go to the end of Revelation, those are my favorite verses. But this is one of those that kind of, I like it because it talks about eagles. Okay, what does it say? Uh, um, Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth because of your understanding. Stop it. Okay, cease. Just stop it. Do not make your eyes fly up to see it. Or do you do you make your eyes fly up to see it? But it is not there because it certainly makes itself wings and flies away like an eagle toward the heavens. So be careful. You set your heart on these things and then it takes wings and there it goes. It's gone. You can't even catch it anymore. So greed is a problem. It, greed is idolatry. Colossians 3 and verse 5 says greed. There are several things I could talk about greed that would be just discouraging to us perhaps because, wow, we see a lot of greed. Isn't so much of, of uh, what we see in the world motivated or based on greed. It's not to say that, and this is another conversation from the time, it's not to say that capitalism is based on greed as a, as a, a method of uh, the production and distribution of scarce resources. There is a lot of self-interest with capitalism. People act because, hey, they want to produce this widget or they want to buy this widget or they want to be the ones to go out and mine the ore to make this raw material. It's, it's self-interest to that degree. I'm doing what I enjoy. But what greed comes is when we are our, you are uh, mismanaging, uh, uh, manipulating other people to buy or to 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 uh, do things that they wouldn't normally want to do. People, we want free and voluntary exchange of goods and services. That's that's great. If we can have a free market, wow! How tremendous would that be? That's what God intended in the Old Testament with the the Deuteronomic law, Mosaic law, talks about how to overcome greed by means of His. Uh, free or voluntary association with people, good exchange of goods and services. In any event, covetousness is desiring what other people have. It is an inordinate. It is a a just a, a, a deep seated 
I want. I want what they have. It's not so much I want that, but I want, oh, I see that person has it. Oh, it's, it's the old thing of comparing yourselves with the neighbors next door. Well, they, how, how do they have all that stuff? And look what we have. And, hmm, we're going to do something about that. You know, a lot of times people go by night and do something about it. And they either mark it up and they, that's, that gets more into envy, resentment of what they have. Over. If I can't have it, neither can they. And just, I mean, that's the whole story about the two women that came to Solomon. My baby died. Here's a living baby. It's my baby. No, it's my baby. And what? That's envy. If I can't have a baby, I don't want her to have a baby either. That's wickedness. That is absolute wickedness. Covetousness, by the way, it's one of the Ten Commandments. In the King James, thou shalt not covet, right? Don't desire what other people have. Don't have a heart of covetousness or a desire for for uh, the goods that other people have. It is forbidden by God. It's in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, uh, wife, male slave, female slave, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't do that. Covetousness can lead to theft. Well, I desire that thing so much. It's gold. It's shiny. It's wonderful. I'm going to take it. Covetousness can easily lead into theft. And covetousness characterizes this present world. People desiring things that belong to other people. Don't desire. Just be content. Be thankful. Work. If you want what they have, you work for it. You serve. You save up your money. You you sell other stuff so you can afford to get what that is. And will you be content with that? I don't know. Hopefully you will. But can you be content with, with what you have already? Covetousness is mentioned all throughout Scripture and that we should not covet anything. Should not be part of a, a um, believer's life. Well, envy also is something that we ought to put off. Envy, uh, Merriam-Webster describes as a painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess that same advantage. You're angry, you're upset about with other people, and I want to have that as well. I want to have that. Envy, just like greed and covetousness, comes from the heart. It's not something that's based on the emptiness or or whatever of my wallet or my pantry or my closet or my parking you know, or my driveway. It is based on things in the heart. That's where the battle is is won in the heart. Uh, Jesus says in Mark 7, From within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. This is Mark 7, verse 21. Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. These evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Obviously, God forbids envy. Don't be envious. Forget envy. Don't be jealous of evil men. He says throughout the uh, these things. Envy is a characteristic of unbelievers. Envy can lead to conflict. And James 4 talks about that. Why are there conflicts and quarrels among you? Is it not the, your is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members, in your body? You lust and do not have so you murder. Whoa! You murder other people? That's what Naboth, what happened to him. You... Uh, are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend it on your own pleasures. Well, going back to this list, we've looked at all kind of causes of economic difficulty. I want to look at two that are very related, and those are these last two, theft and inflation. Theft is taking what, other, what, people, what belongs to other people. Greed takes what is not his own. Covetous Nick takes what's not his own. Bitterness or, or envy can take what's not his own. Uh, obviously, again, the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Don't take what is other people's private property. Honor what is rightfully theirs. Uh, talking, though, about inflation, because that is a big issue in these present days. A lot of misinformation. Inflation is not scarcity. 
Inflation has nothing to do with the availability or the production and distribution of scarce resources. It has nothing to do with that. It doesn't pertain to supply chain problems. You know, we've had two years worth of, of lockdowns and difficulties. Inflation is not relating to raw materials, the obtaining of them. It's not related to the production or creation of these things. It's not related to the distribution of them, the shipping of these things. Inflation is a separate issue. Inflation, excuse me, scarcity, we've seen in the Old Testament. We see in the New Testament, we see it caused by famine. We see it caused by sieges, famine being something that weather-related usually. A siege because a military occupation has come and surrounded a city, and now they're going to fall. We see this in relation to, I'll just mention it, you can turn to it uh, another time. First Kings chapter 6, there was a siege from the king of Aram against Samaria, and they came and laid siege around the, surrounded the city. And it says... They besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. You think, who would want a donkey's head? Because it's meat, okay? Something to eat, a little, little bit of meat on it. 80 shekels of silver, a fourth of a hen, or excuse me, a fourth of a cab of dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver. What kind of an economy is this? Disgusting things. But they were buying it because it's some sort of nourishment in the, in the presence of this famine, excuse me, the siege going on in Samaria. Do you remember that Elisha was there and said, About this time tomorrow, a seah of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Whereas everything, even the most disgusting things, were on sale for a high price. The stuff that you really want, what did he say? Fine flour and barley, much less. What's going to be the difference? Because God is going to destroy the king, or the, the yeah, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, and all his military people are going to flee for their lives. We see this also in the end times later times than this anyway. In Revelation chapter 6, when Jesus opened the third seal and we see that there is a, a black horse, he who sits on it had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard something like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, one little bit of wheat for one denarius. One Choinix, it's, it's called. I'm not sure what that means of, or measure of, of stuff is, but of barley for one denarius. Do not harm the oil or the wine. There's a famine. There's, there's a lack of, of resources. Again, the point is inflation is not scarcity. Scarcity happens because of other reasons. Inflation is a monetary issue. It pertains to what are we using as a means of exchange. And let's be think, what does this have to do with the Bible? Do you know? Throughout God's word, there are commands and God's great alarm and disgust at those who would toy with money, toy with those things, or, or manipulate money for their own personal advantage. We can see it in many relations, and we'll look at them in a moment. But just inflation is a monetary issue. Let me show you a, a uh, relatively up-to-date scale, and just, this is a scale of the amount of money, U.S. dollars, in circulation going back to 2013, I think it is. So it starts out at like a little over $2 trillion in circulation. By the time that this ends, this is the beginning of 2020, hint, hint, wink, wink, that the amount of money in circulation, amount of U.S. dollars in circulation worldwide was just shy of $4 trillion. It's a lot of money. So in, in what, seven years or so, it's doubled, the amount of money in circulation has doubled. That means that whereas a dollar in 2013 was worth a dollar, now it's worth 50 cents. To the, still a dollar. Face value is still a dollar, but the actual value because of it. Now, something happened in 2020. Many things happened in 2020. One of them uh, made the amount of money in circulation, amount of U.S. dollars in circulation, rise a little bit. Now, I don't know if you can see the marks on this. It's $2 trillion there on the, on the bottom, and it goes in, in segments of two, $2 trillion. Are you watching? 
the amount of money in circulation more than doubled. It, in fact, from the beginning, January of 2020, it was just shy of $4 trillion. By May of that same year, just five months later, it is $16 trillion. It was a 406% increase in the amount of money, U.S. dollars, in circulation. Would that cause inflation? Yes. Four times the amount of, of U.S. dollars in circulation. And even by July of that year, it had risen another $4 trillion on top of that, up to $20 trillion. You see how it's, it's, it's gone up. And so the Bible's against that? God's against this? Why? Why is he against all these things? Is uh, Leviticus 19, verse 35 and 36, God says, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or in volume. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. What is he talking about? Don't be wrong. Do not do any wrong in judgment in the measurement of weight. Because when you when you went to buy, just so you read in Revelation and, and Second Kings, when you go buy a commodity like wheat or barley or even olive oil or or whatever, foodstuffs or other things, you would buy it by according to weight. And so if you, the person you're buying from wants to cheat you, they would play with the weight because it's a scale balance or maybe a, a volume container instead of a dry weight. And so they would manipulate it to so that you would get less than what you think you're paying for. I, so suppose you're buying, I, I'm getting put in English terms. I, I want to buy five pounds of this thing. Well, they manipulate the balance so that you're actually only getting four and a half pounds or maybe four and a quarter pounds, but you're paying for five. How does, how dare you do that? And God says, I'm against it. You shall do no wrong in judgment. I hate that, that you violate other people. Deuteronomy 25 says a similar thing. Uh, verse 13, you shall have you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, large and small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may prolong the land which Yahweh your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to Yahweh your God. Proverbs also talk about it. 11 verse 1 says, A deceptive balance is an abomination to Yahweh, but a just weight is his delight. Uh, Proverbs 16 11 speaks a very similar thing. Proverbs 20 verse 10 says about that. One of the ways, not so much in our day and age, but one of the ways in which, uh, especially in the Roman culture or Babylonian or, or people that had sound money, you know, all we carry now is a currency. It's tokens. It is not money. But if we had real silver silver coins, God talks about those who are unjust in the, in the creation of this, of this money. In Isaiah chapter 1, it talks about the faithful city. The faithful city has become a harlot, she who was once full of justice. Verse 21, Isaiah 1. Righteousness once lodged her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. What is he talking about there? Silver was one of the, the primary means of coins. Silver is a little bit harder than gold. Gold was also used as, was as coinage or, or um, as money. But silver was a little bit better because it didn't wasn't as malleable or softer metal gold was. So silver was the primary thing. And yet it says, you have added to your silver, which is supposed to be pure, you've added dross to it. You've added just whatever to it, tin or, or other metals. And whereas people think, oh, this is a pure silver coin. No, it's maybe 50, 60% silver. The rest of it's garbage. And that's what he says here. Your silver has become dross. Your money is, is worthless. And he says other things. Amos talks about this. You trample the needy. You cheat. Uh, you, you make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. You cheat with deceptive balance so as to buy the poor for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. This is Amos chapter 8. 
much more could be said about inflation, maybe too much you think already, but inflation is, is a problem. It is wickedness. It is theft. And that's what we have been doing. You can see from this chart, that's what we have been doing. And so is there any reason why we should have inflated money or, or uh, gasoline? Well, yes. It's not because of production and supply. That has, that has impact on other issues. But to blame that as inflation, it's not. Inflation goes back to our, our money. So what can we do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? I mean, good grief. There's so many, so many things going against us in this age. I'm not the president. I'm not the king of the world. Well, that's a good thing. Who is the king of the world? Jesus is. Okay, can, can we rest in that? Well, hey, if I can't be king of the world, at least Jesus can be. He's better, you know, second best. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't trust you. No offense. And you wouldn't trust me to be king of the world. But Jesus is. He is ruling and reigning over everything. And so we can trust him to do what is right. Things are going to get worse and worse in this life. And yet in God's economy, we want to do what is right regardless of the fruit, regardless of whatever. We're going to do what God wants us to do. So to start with, how about we repent? We repent of fear. We repent of greed, covetousness, envy. We identify those wrong things in our lives and we say, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to hoard stuff for my own good, not being willing to share with other people. I don't want to be panicking. I don't want to act impulsively. Uh, you know, we just need to do something. No. Hebrews 3, 13 and verses 5 and 6 says, make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Wow, I mean, that's revolutionary. Be free from the love of money. Not free from money, so we're going to somehow act and live without money. That's, that, that's not going to happen. Even in a communist you know, utopia, it's not, no, we still need to have a means of exchange. You be content with what you have. So not even desiring the ability to have more, but no, just be content with what you have. Why? Because we have the Lord. It goes on here in, in these verses. He himself has said, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What will man do to me? The Lord is for me. The Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. People can plot all kind of evil against me. I can be a, a casualty of some just happenstance, a, 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 a misfortune that befalls us. But I'm going to trust in the Lord. He is with me. He will never forsake me or leave me in the, in the lurch. We should hope in God, put our hope in the Lord. We should honor him because all things come from him. Every good and perfect gift, gift comes from the Father of lights. He is the one who gives these things. And so he is our hope. He is our stay. He's confident. As we look about us, the whole world's on fire. It's falling apart. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is on his throne. Isaiah 6, right? We can trust him. We can hope in him. And we'll come back at the end and look at a, at a key idea of this. We may not expect him to do things contrary to his character. God is faithful. God is good. God is loving. And he is going to do things that will bring him most glory and our good. We should rejoice and be thankful in what God has provided. Even when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God provided for them. God provided for them bread from heaven. He provided for them water. He even provided for them meat And because of their wickedness. But Deuteronomy 8 and verse 16, Moses is reminding the people, because Moses is about to leave the scene. He says, In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end, lest you say in your heart, My power. And the might of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord Yahweh your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Make sure that you honor him, rejoice in him, be thankful, and tell him so. Not just be thankful in your heart. Say, thank you, God. Praise God for his supply to us. That passage that we often quote, 
Philippians 4, uh, 17, I believe it is. It says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What is he talking about there? Being content, contentment. I can be content in uh, you know, abounding or abasing. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. A little bit later in that passage, Philippians 4, 19 and 20 says, My God will supply or fulfill all your needs according to the riches, his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So rejoice in God. Rejoice in him. Manage his stuff. Everything belongs to him. You think, well, okay, but he's entrusted this to me. Yes, but you are a steward. It belongs to him. You are managing for his glory. It's his property. He owns and controls everything. Well, we we don't even know what everything is. We don't know the depths of the sea. We don't know the reaches of the universe. It's it's God's. You know, a lot of times we look, where did this this shirt come from? Oh, made and whatever it is. God owns it. Maybe it's not even created yet. God owns everything. God owns the raw materials. God owns the people who make it. God owns the machines that make the stuff. God owns the ships that that carry it all over the world. God owns and controls everything. This is his. First, First Chronicles 29, 11 says, Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty and indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So now, our God, we are thanking you and praising your glorious name. Everything belongs to him. We manage it for his glory. Psalm 24, 1 says, The Lord, excuse me, the earth is Yahweh's, as well as its fullness, the world, and those who dwell in it. We need to manage. God has entrusted to us the management of his affairs, the management of his creation. It goes back to Genesis, the the dominion mandate of um, of um, exercising dominion over all these things at the end of Exodus, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 1 talks about that. I'd love to read that whole passage. Uh, but even in that garden, God had a garden. God is a gardener. Genesis 2 had planted a garden in Eden, but he said, I need somebody to cultivate, to care for that land. So he made man and set him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. God owns everything. He's entrusted the management management of it to us. He expects us and demands of us faithfulness. He will ask of us to give a report of our stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, it's required of stewards that one be found faithful, responsible, doing what has been entrusted to us, caring for his creation. Faithfulness is required at every level of stewardship. Whether you have a lot or little, God will expect, okay, what have you done with that? You had one shekel, one denarius, one talent. What'd you do with it? You had five, great. What'd you do with it? If you had 10, great. What'd you do with that? How did you manage my property? Because there is an expectation that there will be some return. Lord willing, we manage it well. We do what we can do. We leave the results to God. But we are trustworthy. We would do exactly as Jesus would have us do. We exercise spiritual maturity and spiritually mature priorities. We want to act righteously. We want to do what is just. We're not going to inflate our money as if we could ever do that. By the way, you try to inflate your currency, you will go to jail. You try to counterfeit money, you try to uh, maybe, in fact, if you look at a quarter, because back in the olden days, when coins were actually coins instead of tokens, you would try to, to shave off the the edges of the thing, try to get just a little bit of silver off of that. So you can, if you get enough coins, you're going to have a significant amount, but that cheapens or or reduces the, the amount of silver in that coin. And so now if you look at a quarter, it has ridged edges, little little ridges on it that would indicate, oh. That hasn't been messed with. Not that anybody would, because it's mostly just inexpensive metals. It's not silver. 
but don't do act righteously. Do what is just. You're, you're selling something. And, you know, don't be like your archetypical used car salesman that you're selling a car with no engine, but it's, you know, oh, it runs great. If you're pushing it, right, you run great. No, don't be unjust. Don't be unrighteous. Act righteously before God. Do what is appropriate. Proverbs 15, verse 6 says, The house of the righteous has much treasure, but in the income of the wicked there's trouble. There is trouble with those who do unjustly. Maybe someday the people will come back and have a lawsuit against the, the evildoers. Another thing we can do is be content. And I think these aren't strategies for making me money in this world. It's, it's a strategy for avoiding the, the love of money, which is really bad. And if you do these things, then God will take care of you. Isn't that kind of like, I don't know, Matthew six thirty three? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else be added to as a, as a bonus. All this stuff, all the things you're concerned about that you spend all your time worried about over here, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Stuff will be added to you. I don't know what I'm doing when I graduate college or seek the Lord. Love him, serve his people, be zealous about good works. God will take care of the rest. Be content in these things. Did I just put that on there? Yes, be content with what God has entrusted to it, to you. Practically speaking, when John the Baptist was speaking to the, the soldiers, whether they were Roman or Jewish soldiers back in Luke chapter 3, they said, hey, John, what should we do to prove our repentance, to have you know, bear fruit under repentance? They said, what should we do, John? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force. So extortion or theft. Uh, well, I think it says that next. Don't extort anyone and be content with your wages. Ah, freedom from the love of money. Because soldiers had a pretty, uh, you know, they, they could coerce people. They could demand, hey, you want to go this way? Well, give me, give me a shekel. I'll let you go. They had such authority and they would use it to say, well, you know, how can a guy, how can a soldier live on this measly wage over here? No, be content with your wages. Don't be violating other people. Other scriptures we could look at as well, but we move on. Accept loss. Accept loss. Things come, things go. Uh, we have a saying in our house that we would have an open hand for the Lord to put and to take as he sees fit. And you think, wait a minute. I like that thing. Can I just maybe take that and hide it behind my back and God here? You know, kind of like the magician you know, directing attention over here when everything else is behind my back. And, and God says, hey, what's that behind your back? And he, he says, don't. Don't hide anything from me. Have everything open before me so that I can bless you or I can take that is a problem for you. Job 121, famous verse. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I should return there. Yahweh gave. Yahweh's taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Except loss. Don't say, well, the good old days back then. Okay, again, practically. Pay off debt. Get out of debt. Uh, avoid the unwise use of debt. Is there a reasonable use of debt? Yes, but so much of our society is, well, if you don't mind, our nation is based on debt. Where did all this money come from? The $16 trillion worth of stuff? Didn't come from, we just found a whole vast thing of gold and silver and we we're going to put it in the money. No, no. We are, in, we are a debtor nation and the whole thing is based on credit and overextending credit as a nation, as individuals. The lender does not have your best interest in mind. You're trying to get something before you can afford it, before you have earned the capital and you are overusing this financial uh, means that we have derived at this time. Another famous verse, Proverbs 22, verse 7, the rich, who does it? The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Be careful. Uh, again, quoting Dave Ramsey, he says, debt creates enough risk to offset any possible advantage. You think, but money's so cheap now. I need to get money now. I need Because interest rates 
are historically low. I mean, they've risen a little bit, obviously. But I can buy money now, you know, borrow money now, so that I'll be paying it back with cheaper dollars in the future. It's a, it's a good financial thing. Yes, but you're forgetting about risk. You don't know what misfortune may befall. You don't know what's going to happen over here. That's not to uh, stifle our activity, but do it responsibly. Be careful. Work to earn money. Uh, work so that you can have enough for your own household, but also to share. Ephesians 4, 28 talks about that. First Timothy 4, First uh, Thessalonians 4, rather, 9, 9 through 12 talks about that. Working, uh, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Tend to your own business. Work with your hands. Uh, Acts 20, verse 30. Five, Paul says about more blessed to give than to receive. Absolutely, live, work so you can provide for yourself and be generous with other people. Make sure that as you have money, you live within your income. One of the key financial practices is uh, don't spend more than you make. Invest in things you understand. Don't spend more than you make. Budget your money. Be careful. If you want more money, then you need to work for it. You need to make your money work for you somehow uh, as well. Um, make Tell your money where to go. And so budgeting is, is that regard. You, we, you see the proverb that talks about the prudent man sees the evil and hides himself. The foolish go blindly on and, are, and they suffer for it. Be careful that you are not overdriving your headlights, overspending over, over your income. Prioritize thing kind of relates to the, to the budgeting. What are your financial or long-term goals? What, how are you uh, working these things? This, well, Proverbs 22, verse 3. Prudent man sees evil and hides. Simple pass on and are punished. Save money. Save money for a rainy day. Save money because you don't know what misfortune may come upon you. Um, this isn't an investment. This is savings for you to rely upon. This is what you might call an emergency fund for unexpected events. You know, this is a rainy day fund because it's going to rain. Careful. That doesn't mean that we should hoard. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 13 says, Riches being hoarded by their master to his own evil demise. It's not what we want. Or that man who built bigger barns to store all of his stuff and says, Well, I, I don't have to work another day in my life kind of thing. Saving is not that way. It's anticipating future expenses. Investing is different. That is saying I've, I've, I'm paying my, my daily expenses. I have a little bit left over for some uh, emergency fund kind of thing. Now what am I going to do with this excess? Because good grief, God has blessed me so much. I have this. I need to look for opportunities to buy assets, assets which, which grow in value over time, not depreciate. And so Ecclesiastes 11 is a famous passage. First six verses there talk about casting your bread on the surface of waters, not so you can feed the fish or the ducks or anything. This is talking about investing, trying to trying to find places to uh, make your money go to work for you. James 4, 13 to 15, 16 rather, also talk about engaging in business and not boasting about it. Another way to be, to avoid economic difficulty is to give generosity toward other people. Just be so generous. Acts 20, 33 to 35, Paul says, I've coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. I worked providing for my own needs and those who are around me. And everything I showed you that by laboring in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Give to other people. Be generous. Second Corinthians 9, 8 and 9, both talk about, Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, both talk about the generosity that God expects from his people. And so we want to give. Last thing here is to teach. Teach other people. Hey, if you're doing well financially, if you've learned, you've made mistakes with zeros on the end, hey, how can you help other people to avoid your mistakes? Isn't that a wonderful thing? And by the way, be original in your mistakes. Learn from the mistakes of others. And hey, find a way that nobody else has, has failed before. And then try that. In other words, learn from the mistakes of others and, and don't imitate them. If somebody else says, hey, I've done this, well, and it failed, 
don't think you're the exception that somehow oh, it's going to work for me. Maybe not. Maybe you be careful. Maybe you do it another way. Maybe you be more uh, cautious in your and you're going forward. I mentioned one verse we'll look at to a passage, excuse me, First Timothy chapter 6. And you, you're going to start by saying, command those who are rich. Well, I'm not rich anywhere near to it. Did you all eat something today? Do you have something? At least you can go home, back to your dwelling to eat for lunch and maybe for dinner and probably for the next week you have enough food. You are rich. You have clothing, clean clothing. You have places to rest your head. You are rich compared to the poor, compared to the... so. Receive this admonition from Paul at the end of 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hopes hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hope. Remember about the eagle you know, taking wing like the eagle flies off toward the heaven. Riches are uncertain. Don't set your hope on them. But set your hope on God. Set your hope on God who richly, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy these things, not to be, you know, thank you God for this wonderful, enjoy it. Enjoy, be thankful and tell God you're thankful. He said, goes on verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Wow, that's a lot of things to do. Do good, be rich in good works, blessing other people. Be generous, just open hands, open heart to share with other people, ready to share, not but reluctant. Oh, I guess I should have been prepared to share with this thing. And what's the result? You, those rich who manage their wealth in that regard, the wealth that God has entrusted, by the way, they stay store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. To organize our whole lives around what is in this present world it's foolishness. It's kind of like playing a Monopoly game and then saying, oh, I won a Monopoly, so I guess I'm going to take that money to the bank now. No, don't try to do that. That's Monopoly money. It doesn't work in real life. In the same way, the stuff that we celebrate and we clamor for and we climb on top of the ladder to get so other people are get it first, it's going to perish. It's going to burn up. But here's where I mentioned about you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Oh, really? I can take my Lamborghini or whatever kind of thing you want or, or my big old HTT, HDT or what all, all the stuff. No, it's not that we send forward. Our mansion is going to be filled with those kinds of things. But the the, the substantive things that, you know, eye has not seen or entered in the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. And I think, I really like this stuff around here. I guess, I guess I'll go to heaven. I don't know what we're going to get there. I hope it's kind of like what we have. Are you kidding me? What has God provided for us? God has promised to us in Christ, and we want to clamor for the stuff of this earth. You want to take hold of that which is life indeed. Use wealth, use money for the purposes that God has given to us. But remember, we are eternal beings. We will be with Christ. We will share the riches of the King of heaven and earth in that future day. Live in light of eternity. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the message of your word from even talking about the, the things of inflation and justice and injustice with money and, and uh, the means of exchange and even the goods and services that we share with one another. Please help us to be just in that regard, but also please help us to remember this last admission to do good, to be ready to share, to be rich in good works, enjoying the things you give to us, not being covetous, greedy, or envious, all these things that are wicked, but to share, to be so willing to, to give up the, the things that we enjoy, even as Moses was willing to give up the, the privileges he had as a Pharaoh's son, son of Pharaoh's daughter anyway, and all the stuff of that, but to realize, I need to be with God's people, I need to be in God's protection, God's provision and he'll never want. Please help us to remember these things. Please help us to have open hands before you to put and take as you see fit. Please help us to be faithful. You've entrusted to us so much as an individual family, as a community. We pray that we would be using these 
resources for your uh, glory, for the good and benefit of other people. Again, we pray that each soul here would be resting in you. Can't put stuff forward into heaven if you're not going to be there yourself. We pray that each one would be trusting in Christ and recognizing he is the Savior, he is the Lord, he's the Redeemer that we need to free us, to grant us forgiveness for our sins and life, everlasting life. Please help us to grow in our faithfulness before you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.